Hey, I'm Amy Choi. And I'm Rebecca Lair, and we are the Mashup Americans. You know, ever since we became friends, we've talked a lot about the subject of tribes and how they reflect on our identity, like, who's our tribe? Where do we belong? And once we figure out where we belong, are we responsible for our whole group? Like, why is it whenever somebody does something bad out in the world, we're watching the news being like, please just let it be a white guy? Anyways, with the current insanity of the presidential election and Donald Trump leading the GOP with his terrible, dangerous identity politics, it just it feels especially important to think about our tribes right now. Rebecca, I want to share something personal today. Okay. Um... Right now, in this moment, being Korean or somehow attached to Koreanness is deeply hip. Like, who doesn't want to talk about how they made their own kimchi this weekend or picked up Dookie Hong's new cookbook or did karaoke in K-Town after eating super authentic kalbi or whatever it is, tried these new face masks? You know, and when this kind of stuff happens, I feel—this is embarrassing to say, but this this really tangible sense of relief, um, because for me— These moments signify a sense of acceptance and acknowledgement by the wider American community that I belong here. I mean, we can talk about how kind of sick and sad that is. Like, I think a different person might feel annoyance at how mainstream American culture is discovering Koreanness. And every once in a while, I definitely feel that, too. Like, I've sat at Korean restaurants where a white person has taken over the conversation to explain to other people at the table what panchan is and how to order their meal and... I sit silently, like, screaming on the inside. But if I am deeply honest with myself, I still get that schoolgirl feeling of, like, wow, they like me. They like all my stuff. But, I, you know, I think it points to how tenuous I feel like my relationship to greater American society is, that my status as a desirable American is somehow secured by the popularity of a celebrity chef, and that That's the thing about having a moment, is that the moment ends. And then what lies beneath is this continual fear that something you or somebody who belongs to you can oust you from the place you're trying so hard to make home. It's been nine years since the Virginia Tech shootings. In April 2007, Sung Hee Cho, a Korean kid who had been mostly raised in the U.S., He killed uh, 32 people at Virginia Polytechnic Institute, and he injured 17 others before he killed himself. Um, He was a senior there at the time, and it remains the deadliest mass shooting in American history, one of the worst in the world. And I I don't think it's ever far from the mind of Korean Americans— I mean, this is when our tribe, like our model minority, exposed this terrible, dark underbelly, um, the truth of repressed Korean rage, our inability to talk openly about mental health issues, our sense of alienation and otherness in America. And there is a deep fear of retribution against us and kind of our, our Koreanness. Um, friends emailed me asking if they thought people would look at us differently now. Another said to me, you know, maybe everything would be okay because the media was the media was calling him Asian American, not Korean American. I mean, it sounds crazy, and and talking about it in in hindsight, it seems ridiculous. But, I mean, it wasn't just my circle of friends. 
Koreans globally were apologizing and, af- and afraid. Um, the South Korean ambassador to the U.S. Uh, pledged to fast for 32 days, one day for each victim in a show of sorrow. Uh, the president of South Korea sent his condolences to the U.S. many times. Ordinary Korean citizens were quoted as saying that, you know, we don't want Americans to think that all Koreans are this way. I mean, the sense of collective shame was overwhelming. And aside from the pure tragedy of the massacre, I think the most terrifying and terrible part of the shootings, in the Korean American community at least, was um, our recognition of ourselves in him. I remember how my stomach twisted when I first read that he was Korean, that he was a writer, that he was a loner. Like, I knew this kid. That sort of emotional shorthand that that we talk about in the mashup community that makes me personally feel so at home among other first-generation immigrant kids, like, that connective tissue also binds me to him. And I feel that same twist in my stomach now. It feels like a betrayal almost to bring this all up again. It's better to bury it and pretend it never happened and, and just hope that everybody else forgets that he was Korean, too. Um, <laughs> you could argue that that is the most Korean thing I have ever said. <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah, so clearly, crybaby over here, um, <laughs> this haunts me nearly a decade later. And at the height of this kind of all things Korean are cool moment, and I just thought I was, I thought it was something that we might be able to explore together. Well, thank you for sharing with me. You're um, welcome. I have snot all over my face. Oh my god! I think I just got snot <laughs> on my face disgusting. too. <laughs> um, let's get Kleenex as a sponsor. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I, this re- resonates with me. I mean, so deeply this idea of being a part of a tribe and I, I feel like I am hearing you like the the intensity of the way that you feel this like that you feel this kind of responsibility for this person or his actions or that it's one even though he's a kind of deadly psychopath <laughs> so like and I, I don't think you are but um <laughs> we can discuss that later how well do you really know me Rebecca? i know really <laughs> but that 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 feels like it it resonates that there's qualities he has that feel like they're connected to koreanness or korean culture and the, the crazy thing is that like for me and this is not in any way to discount your your feelings it's that like when i think about the virginia tech shooting i'm like yes this person that yeah that guy was asian uh i he just seemed crazy like i have no i do not connect it at all to him being korean or know anything about that or did not connect it to my korean friends or the korean community or korea right but you felt that so personally and so deeply it's really intense being Korean. <laughs> well, I, think, I think we all have this. I think it's a, such a mashup thing. It's something that, I mean, my parents talked to me when I was getting married. They're like, you know, when you're not in a minority group or a tribe, it's hard for people to understand necessarily this sense of collective responsibility, right? That, right. That, like, and you have your own tribe. Right. So like I'm there's like Salvadoran stuff, you know, then you start talking about gangs and wars and all this other stuff. And then I'm like, ah, I feel I feel horrible. <laughs> but then there's the the other side of it, which is 
you know, the line for the pupusa guy at my farmer's market is really long, and it's longer than the taco guy's line. And <laughs> I feel like, got you. That's my people. <laughs> Our our version of quesadillas is better than yours, but um, well, pupusas are also delicious. They're the world's best. Yes, um, but you know, and as a Jew, which is a different kind of tribe, you know, like maybe the word tribe comes from Jews. I don't even know. It's like how we define <laughs> ourselves. That um, the tribe, um, it, it has a different weight in the world, in 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 many ways. I mean, being persecuted as a tribe and and again like there's this sort of assimilation thing then this is everybody's fear right well, you're never really safe because you're still other but actually it's like a, it's an amazing time to be a Jew in this world and especially in in the US like we we are so much a part of mainstream society but then there's these mm-hmm. things that happen like you know Bernie Madoff and I'm like oh my god there's this Jew stealing money, like this sort of stereotypical, horrible, everything where kind of anti the root of all anti-Semitism, and he's just like performing it on a global stage. Right. And I didn't even think about the fact that he was Jewish. Right. And I, I don't even know if all Jews did, but like, oh, man, I was like, I can, can this just be erased? Can we use that men in black thing that you like put in people's faces and then no one ever remembers it but there's this thing you know about the both sides like the and then there's the Hanukkah song part of this which is like let's claim anybody who's just a little bit Jewish as ours because I feel so proud that you know Paul Newman is a little bit Jewish because he's the best actor ever and so handsome Um, the world's handsomest man is a Jew that's what I'm Paul saying. Newman. I'm saying. Yep. So, but like for you, there's this cool kimchi thing, right? There's these two sides, which doesn't really feel like a fair um, pro to the deadly repressed psychopath side of the. Like it, do, it doesn't feel like it outweighs it enough because there's a lot of other rad things about being Korean. But those two things that you want to, you claim one, you want to claim part of it as yours, and then do you have to claim the negatives too? Um, right. Yeah. So. I feel you. Maybe that's in summary. Yes. I feel you. And I think a lot of our uh, of our mashups do, too. Thank you for that. I appreciate the understanding, and I feel very at home here. I'm with my people. <laughs> um, so all of my people, my you are my tribe of people. So we're doing something special today. Uh, we're going to have three conversations with people to explore how, as mashups, people who are deeply rooted in our cultures and feel a, a really deep sense of belonging to multiple tribes, including our American tribe, what kind of responsibility we have to our different groups, or if we have any. Right. So um, first, we're going to go talk to Taz Ahmed. She hosts the monthly podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. She's a woman. She's South Asian. She's a Muslim. She's a Californian. She's an American. And she's this combination of identities and tribes and deals with a lot of questions around that. So welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Um, Can you give a brief introduction of all the amazing work that you do? Yeah. My name is Taz. I'm here in Los Angeles. I'm an activist and storyteller and now a podcaster. I'm a podcast on Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. I write a lot of places. Most recently, I had a column called Radical Love over at loveinshallah.com. That was going on for about a couple of years where I talked about being at the intersection of being Muslim and brown and being an activist and a woman. 
Um, I'm actually in a book this year called Good Girls Marry Doctors, so that'll be out in the fall. <laughs> and um, yeah. A great title. <laughs> <laughs> Excited about it. Are we going to marry doctors? We're not we marrying doctors. Too late. Too late for us. So what is, I've, you know, we've heard you describe yourself in a couple of different ways. South Asian, Asian American, brown, um, Muslim. What, what is your, which, which is your group? Like, which is the tribe that you think that, that you identify with the strongest? Oh, that's interesting. I think that my tribe right now is an intersection of being brown, South Asian, Muslim and woman. I don't think those are a lot of things. I don't think good one ones, is good ones, trumping yeah. another. Hmm. Do you find that in different environments, one kind of? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel that in when I'm doing my work in Asian American spaces, my South Asian identity kind of comes out a little bit more. Um, I don't know. I think I, I'm. I do a lot of racial justice work, so I spend a lot of time thinking about race. And I think we're at an interesting point where Islam is being racialized in this really interesting way. So I, even my Muslim identity, I don't know if I identify m- with Islam as much spiritually as I do politically. And I think that's also kind of, I, th- I don't know. But I think because of the state of the nation right now that I'm constantly thinking about the politics in the political identity of what it mm. means to be at this intersection. Mm. So that's kind of why I'm thinking a lot around that. Yeah, totally. There's no room. When you're when Trump is talking about how Muslims are supposed to be kicked out of this country or when people are making disparaging remarks about the Muslim community, there I feel like the idea that we have space to be spiritual about our islam is really taken away from us because we're constantly trying to like fight back and have a voice well i think that i mean that's also something too that you know i think in a lot of people's head muslim means arab yeah and you know no there's like so many different things that a person can be so you know like there's some like really great value in creating like kind of a superstructure like brown Mm -hmm. but the tiny details like getting molecular you know is where we all live right yeah, I think that's why I use so many different identities to kind of describe myself, just because I want to figure out how I can be the kind of brown that's in solidarity with all, with being a person of color, but also the kind that eats rice with my hands and speaks in Bangla. So can we talk about eating rice with your hands for a second? Yeah. Because <laughs> I like to eat with my hands a lot, but I found, well, especially when I've been to India, all the my the aunties are like. Don't, just take the fork. They're like, stop. <laughs> just don't even. But like the yogurt to rice thing, that's the hardest part for me. Yeah. Is like the mixing and then getting it in in a in a like in a smooth way. Do yeah, you have any technique? Yeah, you're not the rice isn't supposed to touch the palm of your hand. It's supposed to only touch the fingers of your hand. Okay. And then you're supposed to kinda like ball the food up and like scoop it. Is this ladylike? I I have tried this. I cannot do it in a way that to me feels pretty. <laughs> I think it's it's lady like you're supposed no, to like it scoop is. it up on the um like your fingers and mm. then you're supposed to like push the food out with your thumb. So it's supposed to be like super ah, like the pushing. I yeah. think yes, and not the getting your mouth no, scooping no. and pouring on top. Yeah, yeah, there's mm-hmm. that aspect of it. This makes a lot of sense because when I watch other ladies do it, yeah, who 
grew up doing this, they always look ladylike. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, she, there's, and I'll just like, everything's so like graceful. Yeah. It's not supposed to touch anywhere else, just your fingers. Okay. Well, we're going to have to do a lesson on this. Yeah, I'm totally down to do a lesson on how to. We're going to do a video. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. This is a A rice yogurt video. So today we're discussing this idea of like, please let it be a white guy. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Um, So we want to know when is your most kind of please let it be a white guy moment? One of them. One of them. I mean, one of the biggest one, the most recent one was when the San Bernardino thing happened. The San Bernardino shooting happened really close, actually, to where I grew up. And, I mean, whenever something comes up on the news about terrorism, there's always this gut instinct of, is it going to be someone who's Muslim? Is it going to be someone who's white? Like, who is it going to be? And in my head, I always know that if they're not immediately stating the person's race or religion, that it must be a white guy. That's just my gut instinct. But in the San Bernardino situation, they didn't state the race or the religion until like in the evening time. So we went a big chunk of time, which is kind of unlike mainstream media to do right. that. And then, you know, it's always like, oh, it's always yeah. the sigh of like, oh, I can't believe it. Uh, I know. Even I felt that. Yeah. And I'm not a Muslim at all. Yeah. Just in my genetics test, I'm like basically just an Ashkenazi <laughs> Jew, Central Europe. Um. I mean, but like, why is that so important? When it when it is not part of, I mean, I think even particularly and especially in this moment in time, when it's not a Muslim bad guy, yeah. a terrorist, it's like it, it then it doesn't have to be about global warfare. It doesn't have to be about these huge, big issues and then becomes about like gun control. Yeah, I think I mean, for me, one of the biggest feelings that I get immediately after an attack like this and it's a Muslim person is the, oh, crap, there's going to be ridiculous backlash in our community. Because immediately after any of these crimes happen, there's a mosque that gets burned down or someone gets attacked and those crimes aren't getting uplifted in the news, but they're happening constantly. There's like so many of them that are happening. Um, and my my fear is always like a fear of like, okay, now I have to be worried when I'm walking down the street in a different way. And I feel, you know, like I feel like I'm invincible, but my dad's older now and I don't feel like he's invincible. And I worry about my family because mm-hmm. how are they going to be protected when they're out there having to deal with this. You know, I think this is something that you and Zara have talked about extensively in your podcast is that everybody is also then looking to you and saying, why aren't you, why aren't you doing anything about this? And I feel like they should learn how to Google. (laughs) (laughs) There's this tool called Google. Yeah, there's so much happening. There are Muslim civil rights organizations out there that are constantly putting out apologies or they're constantly saying we you know condemn these acts um but there are just you know there are people on the streets who aren't reading those things and then they see a brown person or see someone in hijab and say why aren't you condemning these acts and it's just ridiculous that each muslim person has to carry that weight do you ever feel a pang of guilt or like do you feel like all these terrible people belong to you no, no, no. I don't feel like these <laughs> terrible people belong to me at all. I feel like, um, I mean, right now all the all the hate is being perpetuated by a group called the Islamic State, which is really stupid because there's nothing Islamic about them. Right. They're taking this name and they're 
intentionally trying to cause all this commotion to have what's happening in the U.S., to have non-Muslims attack Muslims so that Muslims can go and fight for their cause. It's part of their strategy. And But, you know, there's in other ways that <clears throat> tribalism can be so awesome, mm -hmm. right? And you're like so excited and proud. You know, when you talk about the roots of words in English that or in all languages that are Arabic, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, there's so much of our culture that it comes from the Arab world or yeah. like, and then you want to take kind of pride oh, in absolutely. that, right? Yeah. And we have so much pride in that, you know. It's, so when, when does like that we, you know, become something, that, the we that you're happy with? What are some examples for you? Well, when you were talking, it reminded me of that everything is from India, uncle. So there's always like <laughs> yeah. that uncle that always says that, you know, like the origins of this is somehow totally back to the Mughal <laughs> dynasty. And you're just like, oh, okay. And then when you're little, you totally believe it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. But then when you grow up and you learn about Wikipedia and then you start looking up, you're like, maybe he wasn't that far off. Totally. <laughs> I, yes. Right. I mean, totally. And then all of a sudden, I'm the everything's from India uncle because yeah. I'm just like, did you know? <laughs> Rice started in. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. So what are some examples of everything from India? Oh, my gosh. Um, the word. So I just I just did this when I was at a writer's conference last week. There was um, I saw the word thug. Oh, yeah. Thug is an Indian word. It comes from the thuggy cult that used to um, uh, be the pirates of India, northern India in the early 1800s. And they used to kill all the white people. Oh my God. What's oh up? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're also like yoga. Yeah. Yo yoga. Yeah. <laughs> yoga. Well, yeah. Fucking everybody that's downloading the Headspace app and meditating. Yeah. It's true. I mean, Everything's from India. But I guess it's like we're talking about tribalism, mm -hmm. um, which is very like personal, but we're also existing in systematic like systems of oppression yeah and that's why we have tribalism is that we have this external push to force us into figuring out who we are yeah i mean everyone always says that we're all humans and we all should just you know get along and we all should not see race but based on how we've been racialized living in this country we do see race and it'd be nice to not see race but given the context of how we live we have to kind of um figure out our tribes to survive. It's a survival mechanism. Well, I think there's also that part, too, where, like, you know, it's particularly for in an immigrant community. Um, you know, I know that my family relied very heavily on the other Koreans that they knew that immigrated at the same time. And so you develop this kind of, like, deep, in some ways, us-against-them mentality. Yeah. Or, you know, particularly of Koreans of the generation that immigrated here in the 70s, like, they, they were all people that grew up after the war. And so it's like this herd, we're going to do it, we're going to put our heads down and all do it together. And so you have this, like, deep, 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 deep tie and bond to the community. And then when somebody in it does something that you don't agree with or that you become that you're ashamed of for one reason or another it feels it, it's like a gut it's gutting yeah it's absolutely right? you're like gutting. that's me too yeah and and where do we fail as a community to to keep these people up Taz Ahmed is the co-host of Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, which you can find on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can find her on Twitter at Tazzy Star. 
Okay, guys. Next on our tribal guilt responsibility journey, we're going to talk to Phil Yu, the angry Asian man, who's not actually that angry about being, you know, a professional Asian. My tribe is, um, well, Asian American, definitely. I, I think I've, <laughs> professionally speaking, I've worn that one on my sleeve, so uh, definitely Asian American. And then drilled down a little further is Korean American. I've described myself as a professional angry Asian man, and, <laughs> and I've, I've learned to accept that. Well, so how is that even possible? Can you tell us, like, what role does angry Asian man play in the community? How is there space in the world for to be a professional Asian? I mean, that yeah. sounds kind of crazy, it, right? It's funny because when I started out, it was I didn't set up to do any of that stuff. It was just a guy on the Internet writing and then the next day writing some more and, and then doing it again and talking about um, – you know, talking about things like Asian American identity and community and things I was seeing in the media and wanting just a place to expand upon that from an Asian American perspective. Um, and I think that kind of caught on. And so mm-hmm. what I would think is if we're talking about tribes, it's like a lot of people who also um, affiliate with this tribe, I think them coming to the website and then hearing what I had to say because they too relate on that level. I mean, I think that's what it kept it going. And so thus I find myself the professional angry Asian man. <laughs> Do you have a sense of, um, you know, with your audience, uh, sort of the age range or like who the demographic is other than probably Asian? I've, I I know that a lot of um, college students first come across it, you know, mm. a lot. And then now that I'm doing this long enough, like um, in Asian American studies classes, professors are assigning it as reading uh, which, oh my which blows my mind. You're you know? academically yeah. assigned. I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> you know, part of the text, uh, which is weird. Do you think that there is anything about that moment? You're saying, like, a lot of people discover you while they're in college, about being in college and finding your tribe or your identity, and what's unique about that? Definitely. I mean, it happened to me, I think, right? Like, for college, for a lot of people, it's a great place for you. Look, we're all, you're open, you're coming to the school, there's all these different ideas being thrown at you, all these different groups. In a lot of ways, if your if your high school career wasn't all that great, college is a great place to sort of reinvent yourself and at least be a little more introspective and like who I want to be and what I want to give a damn about, you know. And so, sure, of course, and so of course, a lot of people would come into that um, feeling stronger about their ethnic identity or cultural identity or political identity um, in college, where there are other like-minded people who are doing the same kind of exploring. And then there are all these resources for you to plug in and do that, right? So, of course, college would be a great time for me. It, it, that, it was for me, you know. And it's also, I think, a moment where you're now um, separate from your family. Right. Right. So you you now have to understand who you are in the world. And maybe that world is like a small college <laughs> in wherever. Right. But you suddenly n- know yourself differently or have to say who you are without other people seeing where you come from. I mean, I remember going to college and just look, look, I grew up in a pretty ethnically diverse area. Um, You know, I grew up in in Silicon Valley and I grew up amongst a lot of Asians, like a pan-Asian sort of group. And I never really considered that a thing, you know, really important to me until I got dropped off into the Midwest where I suddenly realized there's not a lot of Asians here. Um, nope. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what did I? What does that mean to me? You know, it's sort of in the absence of an Asian American community, I kind of like I I realized that's what I was. You know, in a lot of ways. And right. so I, I I ended up gravitating towards other Asian Americans, and because you can relate on that level, on a level that's unspoken, on a level that's um, you don't have to explain yourself in a lot of ways. And so 
Um, and then I found that that was really that was important to me when when forced to be like uh, when taken out of my community. I, I, you kind of realize what is important to you. Yeah, I mean that that shortcut is something that we talk about a lot. That that like shortcut of understanding that you know all of a sudden you could relate to people on a different level or in a different way. And I think what's so interesting about that is you talk about being, you know, getting woke on on like a political level, seeing like being Asian American as a political identity. And it's also your personal identity, right? Is, is do you see a difference between the two? I definitely feel like the the two my personal political professional identity are really intertwined in ways that I cannot separate anymore. Um, and perhaps that's I know I mean I know a lot of people can go and they, their, their their professional identity is separate from their personal identity. They can go to the job and clock out and everything. Like that's just this is not the case for me um, because because we're doing this thing I'm like a professional Asian professional angry Asian man it's like that's that's <laughs> something I cannot separate honestly right um and I'm okay with that actually so I mean I think this is really interesting too because embracing Asian anger is also something that can can seem kind of scary when in a you know in recent years in a lot of the media we see like asian anger is also something to be feared right or maybe more accurately korean anger or korean rage and that's part of what we want to talk about today like you know phil you and i have talked about how terrible and awful and guilty we felt during uh, the virginia tech shootings right like your first reaction was like ah fuck i can't believe it's a korean guy yeah like Wish it wasn't him. So can you, like, what was what was your experience of that of that time like, of that day? When the shooter is a person of color, it's a totally different thing when it's just a white guy. Let's face it, you know. Um, and people add a whole lot of things to the motivations of a shooter or, like, why, why did they do this or, like, um, and then the repercussions from that. Like, you know, you can't really anticipate what's going to happen. Um, and so, yeah, and then I found out he was Korean. And, you know, it adds a whole level, other level to that identity thing, right? And um, I don't know. Like, I think <laughs> I grew up um, I grew up in an era where, like, there weren't a lot of examples of Koreans in the media, just in general. I mean, I remember freaking out one time. Um, so Different Strokes was, like, my favorite show growing up when I was a kid. And there was one episode where there was, like, this random Korean storyline. <laughs> really? Where, yeah. Where, so this, this Asian man sto- shows, um, shows up at the Drummond's door, doorstep, and he says, you're my dad, right? And it, it turns out he is, when, 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 <laughs> Phil Drummond wa- when Phil Drummond was a in GI the- serving in the Korean War, he left no. this, yeah, this uh, Asian, like, war child, basically, you know, this war baby. Oh, so God. Um, wartime paternity is brought into question, you know. Uh-uh. So I don't it, even like the idea of Phil Drummond having sex. <laughs> so that's another thing. With the, and so, and then you know, the episode turns out that like actually, um, his mother just told him that that Phil Drummond was his dad because she was actually he's actually the child of of rape actually of of, of another GI. You know. Oh my god. And so and. That's all, and then this is all played for sitcom laughs, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, because that's totally funny, right? Um, but th- that all flew over my head when I was a kid. All I could really fixate on was the fact that these characters were. I, I found out later the actors aren't even Korean, but they were playing Koreans, and they mentioned being Korean, and and you know the mother shows up in the episode with wearing a hanbok, and I was just like, what? 
what? You know, yeah. um, just just You're be, like Halmany? is that just you? being acknowledged, right? <laughs> yeah, was a major thing, right? So I grew up in this era where like I never got to see Koreans in general, and so you every every Korean you see, you feel an affinity for in some way, a connection to. So taking this all back to to the Virginia Tech shooting, when when you know you see another Korean. In an you know in a space where you don't get to see that a lot, and then he's responsible for this monstrous, you know, just murderous killing spree. It, it makes you feel like uh, we're connected in some way in the ways that I really do not want to be connected. But um, and then Koreans have this uh, idea of Han, right, which people often talk about. But um, it, it, you know, it, it encompasses a lot of different emotions. But one of them is that we all, as Koreans, no matter where you grew up in the world. You're still Korean, you know. You're you're Korean, and we're connected in that way. So a Han is the connection. Well, there's a or there's a connection, the but there's, there's also a deep sadness. Oh. A deep like it's it's basically despairing of the world. Yeah, and it's the weight of that on an entire people. Um, so it connects and, and us. And that's the but, connective thread. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I go through the sim. Then I go through this other reaction where I'm like, hold up, like I'm Korean. This guy's Korean. But we have nothing to do with each other on, you know, and, and I go through this other whiplash reaction where I'm just kind of like, look, other white people don't have to do this when there's a shooter. You know, no one has to take resp- no one has to take responsibility for this other guy who's also white. Um, why should I have to do this? You know, why are we why are we going through these emotions? You know, um, do you ever feel that with any other parts of your identity, like as a man, you know, um, or Californian. I don't know, but are there other kind of parts of your hyphen hyphenate that um, that you feel this with? It definitely feel it works one way, and then I feel pride for something like that guy's Korean. He did something awesome. I'm like, yeah, you know. <laughs> but then on the other hand, I don't feel the responsibility of someone else's actions. You know, in, in the case of something like Virginia Tech, I'm like, that's nothing to do with me. And so I don't know if it works. I'm working it out here. I don't know. I feel a responsibility. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't, it's not logical. I mean, it's absolutely not logical. But the same thing that drives me to, like, cheer for the Korean soccer team and to, like, be so pumped when, you know, like, I see a Korean person on TV or an actor doing well or, or like, even the stupid shit, like, everybody suddenly being pumped about Korean food, which is, <laughs> I also feel a, a, a twinge of annoyance, but also amazingness i f- like that emotion for me swings totally both ways i'm like ah why did we have to do something bad and then ah we are so awesome and it feels very deep inside me i mean that's that idea of like your tribe transforming too right i mean it's like code switching but in some ways code switching your whole group identity like sometimes you can be less Asian, sometimes you could be more American. Right. I mean, right. I think what the brilliant thing that what you're doing, Phil, is that you're saying no Asian American is, it is, right. It is well, American. I, I think a lot of the things that I talk about is uh, in doing in covering all the things that I talk about. I'm trying to make an overall statement that Asian American isn't any one thing. Right. It can be, it can be the most awesome you know, triumphant things that we can celebrate, like the celebration of individuals who are breaking through as Asian Americans in in different fields, like entertainment, sports, and whatnot. But I think it's also like we have our share of people who are deeply troubled, who will do terrible things. You know, a, a popular segment that I ran, started doing on my blog that has really, um, people really 
are drawn to is this thing called Asians behaving badly. <laughs> and it's it's just like a, a, it'll be a crime story about an Asian person who did something really bad or foolish or like or like like an Asian bank robber or something like that who got caught and you call it Asians behaving badly and um I don't know people really like that like other Asians really some people are like feel that sense of embarrassment and like oh come on man but then there's also this sense of like yep we have our share of screw-ups too you know we should be allowed to be shitty too yeah that's what you're saying absolutely <laughs> now the world don't So that was Phil Yu, our beloved pissed off Asian. We're pretty glad you got woke back in the day, Phil. So we wanted some professional help understanding the why of all of this. Could there be someone in the world who actually studies tribes and mashups? And it turns out, yes, yes, there is. So we're going to talk to Noor Kataili, a professor of psychology and organizations at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, my alma mater, who studies how we place ourselves in the world and how that changes based on context. It turns out there is actual academic research that explains why mashups think and feel about our tribes the way that we do. We're all members of a whole range of different groups, and it turns out that our psychology oftentimes is wrapped into the, the groups that we belong to, right? We have all these different group memberships, and many of the groups that we belong to come to be really, really meaningful uh, for us, and we come to actually identify uh, some of ourselves and who we are and wrap up some of our own self-esteem and the way that we see ourselves in our group memberships. So when you have an event like that, when you have someone who may potentially be a member of your group or identifies uh, with your group in some way that commits an action like that, it's not unusual for someone that's very identified with their group uh, to actually take some of that on board, rightly or wrongly. Hey, sorry, my I have a cold, so this is how I'm going to sound like a frog. You don't sound like a, you sound like a very ladylike frog. <laughs> a very ladylike frog. <laughs> so, can you define an in-group and and does that change depending on circumstances? It does. I mean, actually, you raise a really interesting uh, point from some of the research that's been done, which is that, yeah, you're absolutely right. We have all sorts of different social identities, and uh, these become more or less uh, contextually salient at certain particular points in time. So, for example, one easy way of thinking about this is that uh, your gender becomes more salient when you walk into a room filled with the opposite gender. When you're one of the very few people of your gender, you're much more likely to self-categorize with respect to your gender than uh, would be true if you were in a room uh, full of people of your own gender, right? So, uh, you know, that's one way in which our in-groups become more or less salient. But basically the idea of an in-group is it's the set of individuals with whom we share a particular identity that's meaningful to me or is salient in my mind at a particular point in time. And the interesting thing about in-groups is that there are two things that happen when we draw an in-group boundary. You connect more with people that are part of your in-group, but you're also at the same time creating a set of out-groups, people that don't belong to the in-group, and that's psychologically meaningful as well. What we find really fascinating is this idea that 
you know, like we could identify so strongly with our in-group, depending on the circumstance, as we said. But then what does that mean to the out-group? Like, does the out-group even notice or is is our kind of attachment to the in-group and like our perceptions of how we're being seen in the world or what we're projecting out in the world? Does it have any impact on the wider world or is it really like we're all in our heads here? There's some research that suggests when other groups see the in-group as being very tightly knit, uh, it can actually be a little bit threatening sometimes. So there's actually some new research showing that just by virtue of creating a symbol for a collective, so as soon as a collective of people creates a symbol of any kind, something like a flag, let's say, they're actually seen as a little bit more threatening because now it implies that there's sort of this cohesion or what's termed in the academic literature like entitativity. It's an entity. It's a tightly knit uh, community. So there are all sorts of interesting dynamics. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Can you say happen. that word again? Entitativity? Entitativity. Entitativity. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit of a tongue twister. Entitativity. Yeah. <laughs> Entitativity. Well, so, I mean, how does that relate into the very digital world that we live in? So warring factions, this I understand. Flag being threatening. I can understand even though maybe it's it says more about the out-group than it does about the in-group. But I feel like today in a world in which everything moves so fast, information moves so fast, and allegiances kind of switch so quickly, mm-hmm. it can be like a million people behind a hashtag and then it disappears. Is that the same thing? Is that like the... 2016 equivalent of sewing a flag? It's a good question. I think it highlights the point that, you know, these groups, these group memberships that you have vary in how meaningful they are to you, right? Some of them are much more fluid, but some of them are a lot more enduring. So it's true, for example, that, you know, you could have a particular hashtag that a lot of people will uh, endorse and, and be behind, and then that can change quite quickly. But it's also true that we're living in one of the most polarized uh, times in American history with respect to politics. So it's clear that certain group categorizations like Democrat and Republican seem to be quite enduring, seem to really shape the way that we think, and there tends to be a lot less fluidity uh, between those different group memberships. I think the the point uh, that I want to drive home is that a lot depends on how much you invest in your in-group in terms of uh, how you self-identify, but also in terms of the interactions uh, with other group members. So the more types of, I mean, we were just talking about symbols, but the more types of uh, norms that you have the, with other members of that group, the more type, the more interaction you have with other members of that group, the more you spend time thinking about yourself as a member of that group, all of those things contribute to creating lasting bonds with group members that you might not have just with a hashtag. So it can happen online, but I think that you know there are certainly differences between uh, the types of groups that develop behind a Facebook group or some hashtag versus the ones that are really enduring and shape a big part of our daily experience and our daily life. You have done um, a lot of research on this idea behind m- motivated cognition. And I think, mm-hmm. um, can you define that for us and how it shapes how we think? Yeah. I mean, at the broadest level, the idea behind motivated cognition is that our motivations, our desires about how we want to see the world, many times influence the way that we actually see the world, right? So, one classic example of this is. Um, relates to politics. So uh, the idea that people will oftentimes see the same news media outlet as biased against their side, even sometimes based on the same exact broadcast, because basically people are evaluating the evidence uh, with the motivations that they have. So if they you know, have the motivation to see uh, that their group is portrayed in a very positive light, anytime there's anything negative said about their group, they're going to really zoom in on that and see the other side as uh, much more 
biased. And so basically it's this idea that we uh, process the environment around us, not in sort of a, a super neutral way, but rather we bring into it our own uh, desires, our own motivations, and that color that colors the way that we actually interact and, uh, with the world and process information. And how does this reflect on that kind of thinking? How does that reflect on our on our tribe and like on our group. So, you know, Rebecca's favorite thing in the world is the Hanukkah song. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the Adam Sandler Hanukkah song where he lists every marvelous Jewish person in the world. David Lee Roth lights the menorah. So do James Conkirk Douglas and the late Dinah Shora. Guess who eats together at the Carnegie Deli? Bowser from Shanana and Arthur Fonzarelli. <laughs> Paul Newman's half Jewish, Goldie Hawn's half too. Put them together. What a fine looking Jew. Everybody's in the tribe in the song, you know? And so we're motivated to see those people. That's exactly right. So you have. Uh, individuals, I mean, what's interesting about what you just said about quarter Jewish or half Jewish, you have these individuals, I mean, sometimes there's someone that's very clearly part of our tribe, but then other times we have people that are sort of ambiguously associated with our tribe. And that's where the motivated cognition can actually come into play. Whether you actually define someone as being a member of your tribe or not, oftentimes is a function of how that individual reflects on your tribe. There's actually some nice uh, research on this that was done uh, in Canada with the uh, sprinter Ben Johnson. So uh, Ben Johnson actually uh, is uh, was a Canadian uh, sprinter of Jamaican descent, and he actually won uh, the gold medal. I think it was in the 100 meter dash in the 1988 uh, Olympics. And the interesting thing about the study is what it looked at was how Ben Johnson was referred to by Canadian newspapers in the days following when he won the gold medal as compared to in the days following when he was stripped of the gold medal because it turned out that he had been on drugs, mm. on steroids. And what they found was that Canadian newspapers were much more likely to refer to Ben Johnson as a Canadian sprinter when he'd won the gold medal and much more likely to refer to him as a Jamaican when he was stripped of the gold medal. And the idea there is that basically our motivation to associate ourselves with high-status people and disassociate ourselves from low-status people or disassociate and associate our groups with high- and low-status people um, actually influences how we categorize individuals that are at these boundaries. What can we say about rational or healthy, <laughs> you're the psychologist, way to process <laughs> this? Like, when is it appropriate to, to distance ourselves from our tribes or feel a part of it? And how do we balance that? I don't think there is, unfortunately, a single answer to that question. I think that, you know, every person has to reckon with uh, how much their group matters to them, how they're going to react to and interact with uh, actions. Uh, by their group that maybe they wouldn't have engaged in themselves or that, you know, might be uh, perceived by others to reflect poorly on them. You know, some people are going to respond to that by, as I said, you know, distancing themselves from the group. And that might be functional for those individuals. So disidentifying sounds scary to me because that there's something incredibly positive about uh 
about forming a new identity. I mean, that's what we're about, right? The Mashup Americans. We're here. We always say we're rooted in one place and looking forward to another. You know, we're creating culture as we live it day by day. Um, but there's also something about the idea of disidentifying slash becoming American slash assimilating, which in some ways is like a very dirty word, you know, a, or a negative, a negative word. And as somebody who needs to bring another relative with me whenever I speak to my grandmother, I can say that the disconnect and the desire goes both ways. It just doesn't, that's just not how our lives turned out, you know? And I think that that's actually, that's something about this idea of tribes, which is so powerful. And there's so many positive impacts and so many positive associations that there can be. But sometimes the tribes choose us. Yeah. I was born in the U.S. and was raised American. So I don't belong to the same tribe as my grandmother, even though I deeply want to be connected to her. That's a very, I, I, you know, I think that's a very trying experience. It's difficult because, you know, that's sort of, as you mentioned, your reality. Um, but at the same time, you can have some of those cultural barriers, this feeling when you're mashed up of perhaps not ever being fully accepted in one particular group membership, I think can be challenging. On the one hand, there's a positive there that you can be at home in many places, but then there's the question of, can you ever really feel fully at home in any? And, you know, that's a trade-off, I think. I am so happy we got to explore this today. It just, it feels like the beginning of such a, a long and big and important conversation that we can have here as mashups. So thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Amy, for being so open with something that we often really just talk about with like our inside voices, only only at home with our own tribe. Well, so are you saying that the entire podcast world isn't just my inside voice? It is. This is your tribe. Okay. <laughs> this is your, right, this is your tribe. One of Thank your tribes. You. Um, yeah, because it's it's so it's so irrational and in so many ways, and it's so hard to explain. But it doesn't make it any less true. Yeah, I feel like this is the beginning of a conversation, not the end. And I'm just so glad that we have a place to do it. Yeah. So thank you to all of you for making it through to this point. We love you, and um, we love you. We want to have this conversation with you guys, our mashup family, because we know that you have so much to contribute to this. Um, we hear from you every day, and and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Like. Who would be in your Hanukkah song? Do you love your tribe or do you work to break free of it? Or, or maybe both. Yes, maybe both, <laughs> depending. Um, so we're having the conversation on our site, mashupamericans.com, or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter, and we'd love to hear from you. The Mashup Americans are me, Amy Choi. And me, Rebecca Lair. Our show is produced by American Public Media and Southern California Public Radio, KPCC. We're also supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Besos. Bye.